Well, some of you may not know Thomas, and some of you do know Thomas. Thomas is a quiet one, and uh, and so he, and so you may not know Thomas is. It's a real blessing to have Thomas uh, share with us this morning for many different reasons. Thomas left to go to the Master's University to study God's Word, and he graduated in uh, Bible uh, degree with an emphasis in biblical counseling. And um, so he's going to come and share. And I so appreciate Thomas's heart. And uh, Thomas is quiet but confident. But he'll be the first one to tell you he's not confident in himself. His confidence comes from the Lord and in the Lord. And he's going to share about humility this morning. And, um, and so for me, it's a blessing because uh, of all of his studies, his love for people, his love for the Lord. And he's been around here serving faithfully this last year, helping out in young adults, helping out Lyle, helping out uh, Bible quizzing, and just encouraging people. And people have encouraged him. And so he's going to come and share with us this morning. Good morning. Um, we've been going through a series on uh, counseling and counseling and what it really is with biblical counseling, it's uh, discipleship. Um, and what we really want to emphasize in discipleship is the fact that um, uh, that it is a work of Christ in you and only through uh, faith in him by his grace um, do you become a disciple and be able to disciple other people? Um, today, my task is to talk about maintaining a heart of humility. Um, maintaining a heart of humility, I chose it because one of the uh, things that was really brought to my mind when I became a Christian was how uh, prideful I am. Um, and it has really been a challenge to go through it these past few weeks, months, um, trying to nail down how the Bible talks about humility and how it should affect our lives or how we should live through um, being humble, but um, the Bible just is covered from end to end in um, beautiful examples of, of humility and uh, grace and mercy. And so I chose um, to go back to the beginning in Genesis 3 um, to talk about Adam and Eve and um, and we're going to basically um, do three things. We're going to look at um, an exterior humility, what, uh, what the world sees um, as humility, and what that looked like um, in my life uh, before I was a Christian, and even sometimes, a lot of times, uh, what it looks like as I am a Christian. Um, and so the ability to disciple starts with a heart of humility. All believers are called to disciple, uh, to be disciples of Christ Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus Christ out of everyone else. To be disciples and to make disciples, we need a heart of humility. Otherwise, we become futile in our thinking and our hearts become dark. It doesn't take knowledge to do this work. It's not about your goodness either. Discipleship depends on a heart that acknowledges its pride uses the gifts of God to inspire change and sets its path on Christ Jesus. The English definition of humility um, 
is being brought low or lowly. And uh, I struggle with that definition because I think about um, past experiences with learning about humility uh, in business. So um, there is this problem that we find when we look at this idea of just being lowly, and that is that it can be very external. We can do a lot of things that look very humble. Um, but the Bible brings up this, these truths that I think are profound, and I always love really looking at this passage when it came to what God actually sees. And so uh, I'm going to read just a part of it. Um, it's in Isaiah 58. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 5. And uh, God is addressing his prophet Isaiah and telling him to talk to the people, um, to proclaim to them, an issue that he has with their fasting. Um, their fasting, and it's not a fast that he finds appropriate for him. And this is what he says. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteous, uh, righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. Behold, your fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a stick, with a uh, hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice uh, to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day of a person that a person humbles himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? And, that's, and it's sarcastic. That's, that's, not what he, that's not what he wants, right? Um, this call to an actual um, pursuit of a heart after God um, is echoed again by Jesus when he addresses the Pharisees in Matthew 6, 8, uh, Matthew 6. Again, it's about fasting. Um, Jesus is addressing, he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. Um, when I was in fourth grade, I was sitting in a class, and we had to draw our morning activities. I don't remember why we were doing it, but everyone was drawing, and the teacher was walking around asking people what they were, uh, what they were drawing, and, and one person you know, has a picture of themselves brushing their teeth, and another person is uh, uh, sketching themselves, um, eating breakfast, and I sat there and I listened to the people, uh, people's uh, morning routines as they explained their pictures to the teacher. And our teacher approached a boy a few seats down from me and asked him what his picture was. He said, it's my brother and I sleeping. And she's like, oh, that's cute. And I was just listening to the story. And, and he says, he died. He suffocated in, the sleep, in, the, in his sleep in the, in the bed sheets. Um, it shocked the class. Uh, they all came around him. 
they um, were comforting him, the teacher as well. And I sat in my seat, and I watched for a second, and I said very loudly, he's lying. Uh, the class immediately turned in rage at me, and the teacher said, uh, um, sent me to the principal's office. My mom came pick me up, <laughs> and uh, she said um, something that I've never forgotten. Um, she said, you are so selfish. And I was like, I'm selfish? That's, that's not true. But it just stuck with me. I never forgot that story. I love my mom, and I love that she said that to me. Um, but that is an ongoing uh, trajectory of, of my life. It's just very, very selfish. Um, I have struggled as I am. Uh, I'm sure everyone here has in different capacities with pride. I spent most of my life uh, ele elevating myself at the expense of others and justifying my desires by comparing myself to others and have uh, manipulated countless individuals to get what I want. When I entered the workforce, I worked my way up into a management position. I couldn't stand school because I struggled with all forms of academia. I refused to ask for help because I didn't want to look weak, but I also wanted, I wouldn't quit because I wanted to prove that I was better than anyone else. I hated class, I hated my fellow students, I hated the teachers, I hated schoolwork, I didn't understand pre-algebra, I barely passed English, not to mention I had no desire to please anyone but myself, uh, which I justified by being morally superior to the world. I didn't drink, smoke, or do drugs, I didn't cuss, I was self-righteous, judging the world for its inadequacies while indulging in my own sins of idolatry. I knew I was guilty, but I could justify myself by tearing everyone else around me down. Um, this caused anxiety in my life. Um, I had rocky relationships. Um, I was very isolated, isolated from my family. Uh, back at work, the company owner put me on his leadership team, and I had attended a yearly seminar called the Global Leadership Summit. It's put on by a church, um, but it has business leaders and different uh, people who bring different ideas to the corporate world for success. Um, the uh, the, um, the theme of this year was humility. Um, and so I went, and the speakers um, the speakers talked about the blessings of humility in the workplace that. Um, when you lead from behind, right, and promote your team, there's, there's uh, more productivity. Um, and that if you listen to people and, you, and you're quiet more, that um, you'll understand more and be able to fix problems and work together and problem solve. Um, he, they taught us uh, techniques um, on, on listening and, and asking questions, powerful questions. Um, and after that experience, I felt transformed by it. I was like, Wow. This is really a really cool idea to actually be humble and implement that into, into the business world. Um, and I started reading all the speakers' books, uh, implementing their rules into my life, and the result was we did have a better work environment. People liked being around me more. Uh, my family liked being around me more. They were proud of me in a lot of ways. Um, 
But all it did was change the outside. I was still trying to use these tactics to manipulate people into loving me and to promoting myself. And if people didn't show the same courtesy I showed them, it, was, uh, it created a bitterness in me. Um, I was still very judgmental and uh, still full of anxiety. And when I read uh, Romans, uh, there's a list here. Uh, it's Romans 1, 28 through 32. And, and I just think about it and how it characterizes a lot of what goes on in my heart most of the time. Evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. I, was, I would gossip and slander. I was insolent, haughty, boastful, invented, invented of all sorts of evil, disobedient to my parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And I was very good at manipulation. To be honest with you, I still think this way. I still want to desire, I still desire my own way. Um, I still get jealous and I still have anxiety and uh, I still uh, try to control um, my life. It's easy for me to fall back into this mind of selfishness. I think it's easy for all of us to fall back into it because it's comfortable, it's easy, it's where we've been most of our lives. Um, it's actually um, part of our nature. Um, it's actually the root of, of sin in our nature. Um, and then we try to justify ourselves. We try to find reasons that um, it's okay to be the way that I am or that um, makes it okay that I'm not as good as I should be. Um, you may... Want one, you may not have the same story I do, right? Um, you may want one person to worship you and not many people to worship you. You may want uh, enough to not worry about finances. I wanted to be rich. Uh, perhaps you want, um, you don't wish for a ton of power. You just want to be left alone. You want to be isolated. You want to be away from everyone. You're still trying to control your situation. Maybe you're obsessed with, obsessed with politics, angry that your representative didn't win or the government isn't running as you think it should, your family doesn't love you as it ought, maybe you are not motivated to do the things, to do anything, because taking care, taking care or caring about something would make you vulnerable. Are you looking for who you are by finding people who can tell you who you are? Maybe you want everything and nothing to be known and unknown, to feel powerful and invisible you may be obsessed with moral goodness, but also fascinated with depraved things, <clears throat> judging sinful people, but also wanting to see more of what they are doing in the dark. Uh, we can look so good on the outside and be filled with so much darkness. We're all unique in ways that we can't imagine. Glory to God for this. But we all have to say, we all have the same problem. Um, the beautiful, unique people God created us to be have been corrupted by an obsession with ourselves. Tim Keller would say we are possessed by self. Our image struggle, our images, our struggles even, right? Our future is what we're going to do. Happiness, are we happy? Are we not? Our glory, you know, am I important? Even when we know we should be humble and take the actions to do it, to train ourselves to obey the rules of humility, our pride twists it back on us in a never-ending pursuit of selfishness and justification. How do we stop seeking glory and pursue true humility? 
How do we change a heart like this? How do we have the kind of humility that removes anxiety and brings peace, not just in relationships, but also in your own mind and your own heart? The type of humility that draws people in, brings us together, wins its enemies, seeks to transform and reflects our union with God. The kind of humility that changes us. We need to understand that our definition of humility, being brought low or lowly, is insufficient. Following the rules does not create a heart of humility. Seeking a humble disposition does not develop a heart of humility. To be characterized by humility, we need to understand three things. Um, The problem of pride in our hearts. Where true humility comes from and how to maintain it. A quote that I found while I was doing my studies, I really love it. I don't know who um, who this guy is. I tried finding him, but I just found this one article uh, from from him. And uh, he says, If pride is a self-centered disposition to determine one's reality, to be God of one's own life, to say in every act and word, my will be done, then humility cannot be merely the ability to forget oneself. That is, to be self-uncentered or even less the ability to be self-pitying, which is just pride in reverse. Rather, humility is the ability to find one's center in God whose overwhelming loveliness and glory can dethrone us from the usurping lordship of our own darkened hearts. Humility is spiritual sanity. Its constant refrain is God is God and I am not. The problem with humility is that it goes against our nature. I say in my heart, I am God, and God is not. I will determine my purpose on earth. I will find glory in my way. And if I can't get glory by force, I'll get it by manipulation. One way or another, I want and will have control. There is no better place to see this than the origin. That's in Genesis 3, 6. I'll read it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who also ate with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. We see in the Garden of Eden that the original sin was disobedience to God's command, right? He told them not to eat of the tree, and he did. But if you drive down to what, uh, what is at the heart of Adam and Eve's decision, um, it's pride. Pride disguised itself as freedom to them. Because it says you can have all the blessings of this world without God telling you how. But it actually enslaves us to our own selfish ambition, We choose to trust ourselves over God. This is about faith. 
Right? This is a lack of faith, a lack of trust in God and what he says is good is good and what he says is bad is bad. Truly, what the world calls freedom is a lack of faith in God and confidence in our ability to create goodness out of ourself. The Bible calls this slavery to sin. So back in 3.6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for, the, for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She saw with her eyes and made a judgment with her heart. She desired it uh, for its appeal. It was delightful, and and it would make her wise. She believed the lie that happiness and wisdom could come from a created thing. Her heart said, and I say it with her, I will get life from my own tree. She trusted her own judgment. At that moment, she put her faith no longer in God, but in herself. This is what kills a person's soul. Our problem today stems directly from trusting in our sufficiency. And this perpetuates sin and death in our world. We try to find goodness, life, and grace in what 1 John 2.15 calls the world. We trade God for the world daily when we determine when we determine the best course of action for our joy, comfort, and peace. Romans 1, 21 through 23 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The references to the images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things really just means the created things of this world. We exchange God for the world. What is the world? John 1 says, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life. We often define these things as power, sex, and money. However, the flesh is not talking about the physical body, but of the desire that is outside of God's ordained use for his creation. Authority, relationship, and wealth all have their proper and good, valuable contribution to humanity if only we focus not on our indulgence of these things, our own judgment of these things, but on the mandate from God to cultivate these things for his glory in the world. Why was the fruit forbidden? Because it was a symbol of our faith in God. Faith in God's determination of our purpose. The tree was a tie to God through faith. If we trusted in his good determination of how to use his creation, we were free to live out our desires perfectly. If you trust God and you live within his ordained um, mandate for creation, right, you have the freedom of all creation to cultivate, Right? The prohibition of the tree of good and evil was not an attack on freedom. It was, it was a means by which we could live by faith. And when we put faith in ourselves over God, we knew evil. We knew evil was to, to, was to disobey goodness. It was to disobey God's goodness. This means the flesh, the desire of the eye, and the pride of life are roots in finding life on our own terms. To put our faith and our judgment in our jobs and our families 
and our social status and our political groups, pastors, churches, morality, stability, philosophy, psychology. When you put your faith in anything other than God, you have stepped into the darkness of self-determination and took what was created to be good and turned it into something that is evil. Theologian John Gerstner says, The thing that separates us from God is not our sin, but our damnable good works. John is just saying that many times, particularly in the church, it's not worldliness as we see it played out in our culture that we must repent of, but of our pride in the things that we do well. I bring this up because many times when we look at this idea of sin and depravity, we think sex, drugs, and money. We think of those that, are not self, that have no self-control, people who are rude, people that are provocative dressing, uh, liberals, hippies, loud people. That's a lot of what we think about when we think about people who have depraved minds. But what are the things that we take pride in? Unity in the body, moral excellence, theological knowledge, how much we support others, our godliness. Do we catch ourselves boasting about how humble we are? How much, how much change, or how much change have we made? Galatians warns us about this um, very subtly. It says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourselves, lest you be tempted. There's always a warning that we can be tempted just as easily as the people that we're confronting in their sins. The church is not a family because we talk about being one all the time. Our children aren't saved because they know how to answer questions about the Bible. We aren't solid Christians because we can quote theologians and read books on sanctification. When we exchange the truth that these things that are really good, come only through faith and continual trust in God for the lie that we must chase unity by hiding faults, keeping secrets to front our moral excellence, and dedicating endless time reading and studying at the expense of sharing truth with our neighbors. When you conclude that the church is doing so well, we can't risk offense or change or differences in people because it might ruin it. <clears throat> To some degree, we have entered the same camp and traded the same truth for the same lie as the person who says love is love, life is valuable unless it's inconvenient, you were born this way, so live it. The same camp as Adam and Eve who put their faith in themselves and said, I can have the delights of this world, the flesh, and the wisdom of God on my own. The simple fact is that life, joy, goodness, mercy, hope, humility, and the most important, love can only come from the author of life, not created things that depend on him who provided it. Pride in the heart is a lack of trust. In more biblical terms, it's a lack of faith in God. Now, back to Genesis 3, we go to verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and that they, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This isn't about nakedness being good or evil. This is an acknowledgement of guilt. For the first time, humanity knew the shame of guilt that comes from disobeying God. 
the greatest gift that God gave humanity outside of his special grace of salvation is that of his common grace. He has bestowed on all mankind a conscience. Romans 1, 18 through 20 tells us that, this, that, this, that his nature is seen in our consciousness, that when we disobey our own conscience, it brings shame and guilt into our mind and, our heart, and the heart of a person. All humanity knows instinctively when it has done something wrong. The wrong, things, the wrong things that we do always have to do with selfishness. We all, stand, we all stand guilty positionally before God due to original sin, but we also feel guilt because of the conflict between our conscience and our nature of pride. Don't run from that feeling by, heading, by hiding and, blot, and, and blaming like Adam and Eve in the things of this world. Don't excuse it with the sins of others against you or the circumstances of the fallen world around you or by your psychological or physio- physiological condition. It's a gift from God telling us that we need help. Guilt is a gift. It tells us we need help, that we need him. The law of God written either on tablets of stone or on the heart of men on the conscience is not meant to make you seek self-righteousness by following it or freedom from guilt by marring it to be, to be a faint whisper and ignore, but to show you the sufficiency of God. It awakens you, your guilt awakens you to the reality that we are in danger, the anxiety, discomfort, and worry, and are signs that you are in the middle, you're in a middle ground between the flesh and the spirit. When Adam and Eve felt the guilt of their desire to find life outside of God, where did they turn? Not to God, but to a hiding place, then blaming. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. If we think we can hide our guilt in the flesh of the world, If we believe we can stand on the basis of other people's faults, we are guilty like Adam and Eve. We are using the foolish things of a darkened mind as a covering to hide our guilt, which will mar mar or continuously enslave us in our desire to seek goodness and justification on our own, forever looking to justify our actions in the created things rather than the immortal God. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11, godly grief, produces, uh, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. When we feel guilt because we are afraid of punishment, we have done two things. We have forgotten who God is and, in, and, in, and, and elevated our judgment over the truth. We believe the lie that God is our enemy and we must find a way to escape his judgment. We need our conscience. We need to listen to it. It is a gift, but we need it to point us to the one who can actually cover our sin. And that is the repentance that leads to life. John 16, 7 through 8 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For it is, this is Jesus talking to the apostles. He's leaving For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit convicts us 
of our sins so that we can draw near to God. Conviction of sin is a good thing. It's something that you don't want to ignore. It's something that you want to press into. Jesus sent the Spirit to convict the world concerning sin, and this is to our advantage. Now, we're going back to our Genesis verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? I can only imagine that a child who normally would run to their parents' call with the utmost comfort, knowing the, knowing the God of all power calls him his own, can be equally horrified um, as he no longer sees his God with the innocence of a child, infinitely loved spouse or a friend, but through this new view, a broken lens, no longer as a child, but a slave whose master will pay his slave his wages. Adam's wages um, is death, and he's expecting that. But God does not change. He addresses Adam by his, by his character, by God's character. He condescends. He, he comes down and says, where are you? That's a father. God comes to you as your father. So when you hide from your sin, even in that time, he's waiting patiently, understanding, and he knew. He always has known where you were and what you did, and he always had a plan for redemption for that. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Grace is a word that we use so much that we have stripped of its meaning. You guys have all heard the word grace, Grace Community Church, Grace to you. Grace is one of the most powerful words uh, in the English language because of what it means. It's unmerited favor, and I think some of us have probably heard that. Grace is unmerited favor. Um, but But that word, but even that definition needs context to bring out the fullness of its power right? There are many passages of God's God's presenting himself to individuals, and they all express two characteristics of God that create a profound, the profinity of the word grace, right? His power to judge and his gentle provision. There are many stories where God confronts people, whether it's a prophet, whether it's Moses, and what do we see? They're afraid. They're, they have no idea what to do. They lay down as dead men. And God always addresses them with kindness, with love, right? He, he, not weakness, but a firm fatherly love. He addresses them. And he's doing that here with Adam in the garden. And that's profound, The God of the universe, the one who created all things, who is all-powerful, knows all things, does all things from the beginning to the end, that that God would then come to us in our sin and ask us, where are you? What are you hiding behind? Why aren't you coming to me? God knew Adam and Eve would lose faith in him before the foundations of the earth were formed. God condescended, asking Adam, where are you? 
This is a great chasm of mystery that baffles the mind, that God of the universe, holy, infinite, eternal, with all glory and joy, would come to a man made of dust who has, tur- who has turned to his finite foolishness and ask, where are you? Where are you? This is what we need to cultivate in our hearts. We must breathe each breath knowing the grace of God, his infiniteness and his provision. You and I cannot produce an ounce of life at all. The result of separation from God is death, and only through the work of God can that change. Ezekiel 36 uh, is a very popular uh, section that we talk about because it talks about the heart, right? Um, 36 says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all of your uncleanliness. The thing we see in this passage that I think is just very important to understand, we really need to understand this, is that God is the one who does all of it. He will deliver us from our uncleanliness. He gives us new hearts. He transforms us. He does this. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love for, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and, raised, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Jesus is God who came and died and died our death to cover our sins, taking on the wrath we deserve for our rebellion against his love. He didn't just pardon us, but then rose with new life. The life that he gives us through his spirit is the beginning of the heart of humility. We die with him in his death. And we are risen with him in his new life. True humility of heart is a supernatural death to pride and a resurrection of faith in God. The question then arises, if true humility of the heart comes from a supernatural death of pride and a resurrection of faith in God, which only God can do, how do we maintain that? How do we maintain the reality of the gospel in our hearts? Because that's what this is. We must acknowledge our pride by the power of the Spirit through forms of the conscience and God's law and the use of guilt that comes from seeing our failings against God's goodness as the catalyst, not to change our behavior to be better or to excuse with with comparisons, but to turn our eyes on Christ. It is faith through grace that maintains a heart of humility. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith is a gift of God. So we cannot boast of our salvation. If you think about what we covered earlier, the nature of our heart is rooted in selfishness, determining what is delightful to the eye by the wisdom outside of God. 
we realized that faith had to be a gift. We had to set our hearts and our minds. Uh, we, we had set our hearts and our minds on the world. That's where we're at. Determining its goodness through our flesh. Romans 8, 6 through 11 says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, whoever, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. We must set our minds on the spirit, the simple act of trusting him. How do we trust him? By the power and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We set our minds, hearts, and actions on Christ. We don't love our families, friends, and enemies because we need to justify ourselves. We love them because God first loved us. We believe that, and so we love out of that truth. We don't turn the gifts of God in the created world into our pursuits because we know and believe the creator of all of these, a creator of all of it, who has given us abundantly, has gives to his abundance, gives his abundance to his children. We don't have to pursue the world because we know God will give us all that we need and desire if we truly follow and obey his law or obey his will. You don't need to be anxious about tomorrow because God has said that he will take care of tomorrow for you. When we all set our hearts and minds on Christ Jesus and obeying him, we start to see the fruit, right? We see unity in the body. We see joy in our suffering and love in the most contentious relationships we have. The, true change, the truth changes us if it is rooted in our hearts by the power of the Spirit, of God's Spirit. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we have that power? Is the Spirit in us? Maintaining a heart of humility does not mean that you will not struggle with idolatry or the idolizing comforts, family, sports teams, and good community. Still, it does, mean, it does mean that we recognize our pride and turn from its deception of self-sufficiency and turn to God for help. As we practice this act of faith in turning from our pride and acknowledging God as the true source of delight and wisdom, we start to change. It's not about what we turn away from either. It's who we're turning to. What are we looking at? What are we pursuing? Where are we going? It's not about what we are left behind. I'm not consumed with what I did. I'm consumed with the glory of God in Christ Jesus and what he's doing. Who we turn to changes us and creates a heart of humility. Um, I love the book of 1 John. It is written to people who are struggling with their salvation. Who do they know? Uh, how do they know that they are saved? And John counsels them. John says in uh, chapter 3, 1 through 3, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us 
is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That counsel, that counsel is also for us, right? He is our father. When we see him, we will be like him. And he is purifying us for himself right now as we gaze on him throughout our lives. That creates peace and joy and gets rid of anxiety. Our relationships grow and we reflect just the pure goodness of God that Adam and Eve neglected at the beginning of this story. Do you turn to look at him? Do you see his footsteps and walk in them? When you fall, are you focused on your failing, or do you realize that your father has prepared good works for you to walk in? So you keep walking. Discipleship is turning evermore to our Savior and letting him change us. Are we pointing others to him, to an undefiled hope that, that is laid up for them in heaven? Do we comfort one another with the reality that God's perfectly ordained our lives for our ultimate good and his glory. It is impossible to believe the truth when determining good and evil uh, for ourselves. We don't see this if we're doing it on our own. And if you don't see it and you want it, right, you ask for it. You pray to the Lord and you ask. And you keep asking. You keep coming to the door and you keep knocking. And that is faith. And that is all my notes. So, um, thank you guys for listening, and I think we will pray real quick here. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for your Son, for the grace that you've given us all, the mercy that you've shown us, the fact that you continue to counsel us and, and show us the goodness that you are as we try to run in our pride to our own selfish desires. Um, Father, I pray that you just, you grow our hearts for you, that you would produce this humility in us that would um, be um, infectious, Lord, that other people would see it and want to know you. I pray, Lord, as we counsel one another, that we are humble um, servants, that we see that the true counsel is from you, that you are our counselor, and that you are our Father, our our love, our our maker, our our planner, you you are the provider. You do all in all. And when we turn to those truths, when we read the Bible, when it affects our lives, Lord, you change us. I thank you, Father, for these truths. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And I thank you for this people, Lord. In your holy name we pray. Amen.